the raging sea. My God, He holds the victory. There's joy. There's joy in the house of the Lord. There's joy in the house of the Lord today. And we won't be quiet. We shout out your praise. There's joy in the house of the Lord. Our God is surely in this place. We won't be quiet. We shout out your praise. We sing to the God who heals. We sing to the God who saves. We sing to the God who always makes a way. Cause he hung upon that cross and he rose up from that grave. My God still rolling stones away. There's joy in the house of the Lord. There's joy in the house of the Lord today. And we won't be quiet. We shout out your praise. There's joy in the house of the Lord. Our God is surely in this place. We won't be quiet. We shout out your praise. We were the beggars. Now we're royalty. We were the prisoners. Now we're running free. We are forgiven, accepted, redeemed by His grace. Let the house of the Lord sing praise. We were the beggars. Now we're royalty. We were the prisoners. Now we're running free. We are forgiven, accepted, redeemed by His grace. Let the house of the Lord sing praise. There's joy in the house of the Lord. There's joy in the house of the Lord today. And we won't be quiet. We shout out your praise. There's joy in the house of the Lord. Our God is surely in this place. We won't be quiet. We shout out your praise. There's joy in the house of the Lord. There's joy in the house of the Lord today. And we won't be quiet. We shout out your praise. There's joy in the house of the Lord. Our God is surely in this place. We won't be quiet. We shout out your praise. Amen. 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 Joyful, joyful, we adore you, God of glory, Lord of love. I've sung for my clouds before you, hold me to the sun above. Melt the clouds of sin and sadness, drive the dark of doubt away. Giver of eternal gladness, fill us with the You are the one who saves. You are the one who saves. You are the one whose hands lift us from the grave. 
of folks around you that are wonderful people, and there is at least one person around you that you don't know. So you need to seek and find that person you don't know, get to know them briefly and welcome this morning, and then you can be seated. Let's pray as the ushers come forward for this morning's offerings and let's continue to worship through giving and 
prepare our hearts for the Word. God, we thank You. You're amazing. The gifts that You give to us is beyond our comprehension. The very air that we breathe and life is a gift from You. The provision of food and clothes and finances and all of these things. God, we are truly blessed in so many ways. And we realize that everything that we have comes from You. So Lord, please receive these offerings as a return on on what You've given to us as an act of worship. And may these resources be used for Your kingdom to establish Your Word both here in Columbia County and abroad as we support missionaries. All throughout the, the, the world, Lord, we ask that You be with our missionaries. Father, we thank You for the provision of Your Son that gives us new life. And Lord, help us to continue to proclaim that message wherever we go. We thank You in Jesus' name. Amen. for the last number of months and seeing how we need the Holy Spirit to be part of our lives, to preach the gospel, to live this life. I invite you to use this song as your prayer this morning as we ask the Holy Spirit to change our lives. Holy Spirit, living breath of God, breathe new life into my willing soul. Bring the presence of the risen Lord to renew my heart and make me whole. Cause your word to come alive in me. Give me faith for what I For your purity, Holy Spirit, breathe new life in me. And Holy Spirit, come abide within, may your joy Christ in all I 
so radiating to you, Jesus, that it would be clear to the world that you are Lord and that you are King and worthy of all the honor, glory, and the praise.
you promise to be in our midst as we lift our praises to you. So we thank you that you have joined us this morning and you are here. Holy God, awesome God, the one who desires to reveal 
himself to each one of us. Holy Spirit, open our eyes that we would see Jesus this morning. And that we would leave changed people molded more in the image of our holy God than when we walked into this room this morning. Be honored and glorified. Teach us, Holy Spirit, from your word this morning. In Jesus' precious name, our Savior and Lord. Amen. If you would open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 13 as we continue to study the growth of the early church by the power of the Holy Spirit, and as Luke writes, we're picking up on Paul's missionary trip, his first missionary trip. Have you ever considered how hard it is to be a missionary? I mean, really think about it. <laughs> the missionaries in the room say yes. But you look at, you consider that, the difficulty. There was a missionary a long time ago. His name was David Brainerd. He was an 18th century colonial American missionary. And during the last five years of his lifetime, he traveled over 3,000 miles on horseback to be able to preach the gospel to the Native American Indians that were, that were here in the land. He dedicated his life. He was a, a guy that was really driven and died at the age of 29. He died of tuberculosis that he contracted uh, much earlier, about seven years earlier in his life, and he didn't allow that to, to limit him. He was orphaned at the age of 14 and had devoted his life to God, went to Yale, and, and back then the Yale University was actually a seminary be able to train pastors and teachers, and, and he went to Yale and became a missionary and, and traveled. He suffered from deep depression. Some, sometimes that depression was so intense that he just couldn't do anything. He just, it, it just laid him out. But it didn't stop him from being on mission. Brainerd spoke of five challenges in his diary that... Uh, that were given, and I, and I wanted to touch on these. These challenges in being a missionary is one, one of the challenges that a missionary has in time. Brainerd writes, How guilty it makes me feel when I think I have trifled away and misused my time and wasted my days. This guy's in his late 20s. And, and you think about missionaries, what makes a missionary so driven yet so conflicted is the fact that they live with this concept of eminence. If I don't share the gospel, people are going to die and they're going to spend eternity in hell. And, and so I, I have to go. And so he was driven, regardless of his depression or his illness. Not so much that he was lacking the time, but other people were lacking time. That they needed to hear the gospel now. A second challenge that he writes in his diary is about loneliness. As he would travel the many miles on horseback, he would travel alone. He would spend his time trying to connect with a partner in ministry, but he never did. 
missionaries look for companions and partners, but often they lack that partnership. And if you think about a missionary, they leave the comfort of everything that they have within their, their home and their community and their society. And they go out to a place that's foreign to them. And they will always at some level remain a, a bit foreign in that land to live in that and try to find a partner. To partner in that is very, very difficult to have that same vision. A third challenge is the challenge of communication. Brainerd, like many other missionaries, was entering into a foreign land even though it was the Americas, to a people that spoke a different language. And for the native culture, it was very, very different for him. And even though you can learn a second language, it'll never be your native tongue. It'll, you'll never completely fit into that. And you think about that in the, from the construct of, of being missional, to be able to speak that language. A fourth is the challenge of hardship. The hardship, the the missionary is called to endure hardships and to go out and to suffer. And it's because they're, they're basically living hand-to-mouth. The missionaries that are they're called, they're, they're called to go out and they're living in a house that's not theirs. It's often borrowed. They're living off of the benevolence of others that are in that land. They're always living with the threat of being removed or attacked or or such things, being kicked out of their country within this, always being opposed, this constant state of danger, and in some countries it's physical danger. Next week we'll have the privilege of having Pete and Charity Rogers here from Mozambique. And having gone to Mozambique and to Nampula where they were, the danger is legitimate. Pete was, Pete's job was in charge of the security for the missionaries that are there. They had to have safe rooms built into their missionary houses with satellite phones in order to be able to try to get them out. Huge, huge danger that is within that. But I think one of the greatest dangers is the challenge of discouragement. Brainerd writes within this that God seems to grow upon God seemed to groan upon the design of their saving conversation. In other words, Brainerd struggled with this discouragement because he desired for people to come to faith. Yet he didn't see much fruit. Can you imagine living a long time in an area and, and, and giving your life to a missional work and, and finding little to no fruit or conversions or salvations? And to being rejected time and time and time again? And to be abandoned by people or even worse, being forgotten while you're in the mission field. These are some real dangers that all missionaries face. But what keeps them going? What keeps a missionary in the field? What sends people out? It's the Spirit of God. It's the Spirit of God that moves upon that heart, and it's answering that calling that is there. Brainerd writes in his journal, he says this, quote, I saw that this cause is God's, that He has an affinity, greater regard, or I'm sorry, He has infinitely greater regard and concern for it than I could possibly have. That if I have any true love for this blessed interest, it is only a drop derived from the ocean well. If it's God's cause, be so dear and precious to Him, then I will promote it. In other words, the missional movement is God's cause, not His. And He was devoted to fulfilling that cause. Which brings us to Paul and Barnabas. What would move a guy like Paul 
who really didn't need to go out into the mission field. He was pretty well set, a Pharisee above Pharisees. He was settled. But it was the calling of Jesus, and he would go out and be beaten, stoned to death, rejected, persecuted a number of different ways. And he would keep going after more and more. And it was for the calling of God on his life to go and to share the gospel. And this morning, as we take a look at our text, we're going to see two things that Paul will encounter on his first missionary trip. He's going to be abandoned by a team member, and then he's going to be rejected by his own people, his own family. Yet he's going to keep on going with this. The path of evangelism, and we are all evangelists, is going to be full of discouragements and disappointments. As a Christian, you are on mission to share the gospel. That's our, that's our role. If you ever try to figure out why does God keep me on this rock? It's to share Jesus. But it's going to be full of discouragement and disappointments with that. But what we're going to learn this morning is that we need to preach the gospel to everyone, regardless of the outcome, and leave the results to God. So I'm going to ask that you stand as we read through Paul's sermon. Acts 13, 16, all the way down to the end. And, and pay attention to the format and how he formats his sermon. We're going to unpack it. We're going to read through it, and then I'm going to go through it rather quickly. And, and, I'm sorry, not 13, 16. In verse 16, it says, Paul stood up, motioning with his hand, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. And the sermon begins. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he led them out from it. For a period of about 40 years, he put up with them, I love that, in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land in an inheritance, all of which took about 450 years. And these things he gave them, judges until Samuel, the prophet, and then they asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, 40 years. And after he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he also testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. From the descendants of this man, according to the promise, God had brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. And after John had proclaimed before his coming of the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And while John was completing his course, he kept saying, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he, but behold, one who is coming after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brethren, sons of Abraham's family, and those among you who fear God, to us the message of this salvation has been sent. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither him nor the utterances of the prophets and that are read every Sabbath, fulfilled by these condemning him. And though they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. And when they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now witnesses to the people. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers, that God had fulfilled this promise to our children 
in that he raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him up from the dead, no longer to return to decay, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and the sure blessings of David. Therefore, he also says another psalm, You will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. For David, after he had served this purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. But he whom God raised, being Jesus, he who God raised did not undergo decay. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed, through the law of Moses. Therefore, take heed so that the things spoken of in the prophets may not come upon you. Behold, you scoffers and marvel and perishing, for I am accomplishing a work in your days, a work which you will never believe, though someone should describe it to you. Now, as Paul and Barnabas were going out, the people kept begging that these things might be spoken to them on the next Sabbath. And now when the meeting of the synagogue had broken up, Many of the Jews and of the God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, speaking to them, were urging them to continue in the grace of God. And the next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contra- contradicting the things spoken by Paul, were blasphemy. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we're turning to Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they were beginning, they began to rejoice in glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many had been appointed to eternal life, believed. And the word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region. But the Jews incited devout women of prominence and leading men of the city and instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust of their feet and protest against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were continually filled with joy in the Holy Spirit. May God bless the reading of his word. You can be seated. So as we take a look at this and we see this, Paul and Barnabas were coming down and and they had left the island of Cyprus to reorient ourselves. If if we were to go back up to 13, we see Paul and them. They were coming out of Perga to Pamphylia. There's a map that I want to show you that will kind of reorient ourselves to that. So Jerusalem was down here and they went up to Antioch. From there, they traveled to the island of Cyprus, the 60 miles, and then they went 90 miles by foot across to Paphos. And then from there, they would travel up to Perga here. Perga is where John Mark would leave them and depart from them. And we got to understand that Paphos and, and Cyprus, this whole city, was there for a period of time. We don't know why John Mark left. John Mark left for some reason. He was Barnabas's nephew. And Barnabas wanted to bring John Mark basically to handle the bags and to disciple him and train him from Antioch. The problem is when he got there, he decided to leave. One of the one of the things that I think is so important to understand is that as you go out on this missional work, you've got to go out as a as a team. 
And Paul and Barnabas were a team. John Mark was supposed to be with them as a team. But can you imagine one third of your team leaving and just going and being scared and, and moving on? Now, we know that John Mark was young and he was young in his faith. And, and you know, maybe the, the whole journey was overwhelming to him or whatever the case is. But it really kind of can be discouraging and cause you to question this calling. Is, am I really doing what I should be doing within this? And they come to this place where it is, it is a challenge. I know there have been times when I've gone out on missions trips and led missions teams, and there have been people that were on the team that probably shouldn't have gone. But I let them go and encouraged them to go, and then a couple of times I've had to send them back home. That's kind of hard to do when you're overseas. But it was necessary within, within that structure. So John Mark goes up, but again, this is the first trip. Can you imagine Paul and going, well, maybe I didn't pick well. Now, we know that this, this John Mark leaving had developed such a contention that later on, on the second trip, when they were getting ready to go out, Barnabas said to Paul, I want to bring John Mark again. Paul said, nope, not bringing him. He left me once. He's, I'm not bringing him again. Barnabas says, no, he needs to go. And so they got into a little tiff. And Paul says, well, I'm going to go and I'm going to take Silas. Barnabas goes and he takes John Mark and then they, they go their separate ways. Did it always stay that way? No. John Mark had grown over a period of time. And then you can read later on where uh, Paul goes and acknowledges John Mark as being a great asset to ministry within that. But he just didn't mature at the time. And... Barnabas was the guy that always looked at somebody as potential. Paul was the guy that was a driven missionary and says, I got to go. And if you can't keep up with me, then stay home. And so he, he moved on. But I think Paul over time softened and, and Barnabas had, had done that work within that. But we know that they were working on one mission. And that was preaching the gospel. So as you take a look at the map... He would go and he would make the journey all the way from Perga up to Antioch, Pisidia. Cappadocia is right here. In fact, we're going to be, when we go to our Turkey trip, we're going to be touring these churches here. But we will fly over here and visit Cappadocia. That will be one of the places. But he goes up to Antioch here, Pisidia. Now, there were six different cities named Antioch. They were named after a guy named Antiochus. So Lucius, his... his um, son had decided to honor him with these cities, and they started naming them in 300 A.D. within this. There were significant cities. The, the, the journey would be difficult because as they would travel from Perga up to Antioch, they would have to do an elevation climb from sea level to 3,600 feet. It was 100 miles that they would have to go up. And you think about that journey that's a dedicated missionary, isn't it? You're walking through the mountains to get up to this city. Why? Because you want to share the gospel. With whom? Gentiles. People that haven't heard the gospel. But you're going up. And what do they do? Well, Paul goes up there, and as the text tells us, he gets up there, and the first place that he goes to is the Jewish synagogue. Why would he go to a Jewish synagogue? Well, because Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. And so he would go into this Jewish synagogue. Now, it's important to understand also 
Synagogues was the seat of cultural everything. It was where justice was for, for the Jews. It was where all of the teaching and education was. It was the social events. It was everything. So life existed around synagogue. And a synagogue could be established as long as there were ten Jewish men. Antioch, Pisidia had a lot. It was a, it was a, a very large city that was there. The other thing that's important to understand is as they would go into synagogue, there would be a synagogue elder. He would be the chief of the synagogue, and he set the order. Typically, there was a liturgy that would go on within the, the order of worship. They would start out in there with a call to worship, then a prayer, then a reading of Scripture from the Pentateuch or the prophets, and then there would be words of exhortation, that would come from any traveling rabbi or something like that. Real similar to what we're doing. We, we have a call to worship. We have prayer. We have all of those different things that are there. That was the standard liturgy. Now, if you think about Paul as a missionary, he's very smart. What is he going to do? He's going to take the fact that he is a Pharisee, Jewish Pharisee. He's going to go to the synagogue. And he's going to allow them to read the scriptures. And then he's going to take the opportunity during the exhortation piece to be able to preach the gospel. That's pretty bold. What's important for us to understand is this, is that God has ordered us to be able to, to go to a place that is common to us to preach the gospel. What's common to you? Well, it might be your work. It might be your family. It might be different places that is normal for you. It might be sitting in a fishing boat next to your buddy and start preaching the gospel, which is a good place. Why? Because he can't get out of the boat. Right? You're stuck with me. Now, he may not go fishing with you again. But, you know, we need to be able to meet people in those common areas and those common opportunities. And for Paul, that was his thing, to be able to do this. Was it unusual for people to be able to expand on Scripture? and say, No, Jesus did it. In fact, in Luke chapter 4, verses 20-21, Jesus did the exact same thing. As he went into the synagogue and he was given the opportunity to read out of Isaiah and then preach from it. Notice it says, and he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all of the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Wow. And he was preaching Isaiah. That's amazing when you think about it. That's the opportunity that, that they had. So where would they go? They would go where the people that were gathered to be able to preach the gospel and, and to share and to use the gospel. So he started, as we picked up in 16, to be able to preach the whole gospel. But the whole gospel doesn't start with Jesus. The whole gospel starts with God's redemptive plan for the nation of Israel. What he wanted all of the hearers to understand is that God has a plan of redemption for the nation and for the people. Do you realize that it wasn't an oh by the way that you're saved? That your name was written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundations of the world. That everything that has happened is all according to God's holy plan. The fact that you live in South Columbia County, whether you like it or not, it's all part of God's holy plan. The family that you're in, all of these things. This is all, when, we, when we think about all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to His purpose, these are all preordained. 
You didn't have a choice. Now, I know some of you want the choice to pick your family. You don't get to. Sometimes you can pick your friends. But the reality is God has you where you are for a purpose. And that purpose isn't done yet. It's part of the calling that God has on your life. So what Paul does is he takes the hearers all the way back to the first time when God declared Israel as his son. And he did that when they were in Egypt. Now, in Genesis 15, we know that God had already given a covenant to Abraham to make him a great nation and to make his seed great. But they would go into Egypt, 70 of them, and they would come out over a million. It was all part of God's redemptive plan. So Paul, he preaches what's called a kerygma. K-E-R-Y-G-M-A. And it was the old or was the New Testament word that was used to speak of the gospel. It means to, to, to preach a preached message. So Paul's preached message starts with the Jewish history. What is important about the Jewish history? It's all come down to this. A promise made is a promise kept. God made a promise to the nation and he keeps his promise. And he brings them all the way back with this historical retrospect of God's divine prerogative that God chose the nation of Israel. Israel did not choose God. And he did so in this work. And so he says, men of Israel and God-fearers. Now, we can't miss the fact that who are the God-fearers? The God-fearers would have been the Gentiles, the non-Jews, that were at synagogue that were worshiping Yahweh God. So they have one teaching, and that would be the Torah, the Pentateuch, all of that. And he brings them all the way back to this historical truth that God in his divine prerogative chose Israel to be his son. Now I know it's something to wrestle with because we want to think that we chose God. We respond to God. God chose us. If it wasn't for the Holy Spirit, we would never know anything about God who reveals truth to us. And so God chose him and he demonstrated his mercy to them. And in the 400 years of captivity, he grew a nation through adversity and made them into a great nation within that. And during this time, and, and Paul doesn't spend a lot of time on the historical data. He says, yeah, you were there and everybody knows it. And then you went out into the wilderness what happened in the wilderness? God put up with you. <laughs> you ever think about how many times God puts up with us? Does God put up with you? Absolutely. In our foolishness, in our arrogance. Israel came out of Egypt. They wandered through the wilderness and, and they said, you know, we need to go back to Egypt. It was better in Egypt than out here in this wilderness. You brought us out here to die. Really? You were making bricks with spit and straw. You remember it, the past is a whole lot better than what it really was. And isn't that Satan's temptation? To get us to think about the past and how, better, how much better it is? No. The wilderness is a place where God would teach the nation of Israel about His graciousness and His long-suffering and God's grace. Then God demonstrated, as Paul in his account says, and then God brought you to a land that you didn't have to work for it was gifted to you. I will empower you to defeat 
the seven nations that occupy the land. You can look them up in Deuteronomy chapter 7, where he would go through and defeat all of these nations that are there. And for ten years, the nation of Israel would go in and battle these nations and win, except that they got their lunch handed to them in Ai because they blew that one. So over a period of 400 years in Egypt, 40 years in the wilderness, 10 years of of embattling in the land, guess what God did? Kept His promise. God was faithful. God was long-suffering to a people that God had chosen. You. That was His promise within that. How did Israel reward that? Well, they turned their back. God gave them judges. He gave them this, this group of people. And Paul would say, God gave you judges up until the time of Samuel. God said, I'm going to give to you a government. And they're going to act on my behalf, but they're going to give to you all the things that you need. We don't want your government, God. What did they ask for? A king. Who did they get? Saul. Why did they want a king? Because they wanted to be like everybody else. God said, okay, I'll give you what you ask for. Be careful when you ask for something from God. He might give it to you. He gave them Saul, tolerated Saul for 40 years, and then Saul rebelled against God, and God removed Saul, and then gave them what? Another king named who? David. Now, in Paul's narrative, in his sermon, he goes through this history pretty fast. Why? Because that just reveals God's long-suffering and all of that, and everybody would have known that. But now he comes to David, and he takes a little bit more time with David. Why David? Because David was known as a man after God's own heart, or a man that would do the will of God. And he was God's choice for the nation. Again, God demonstrated grace. And we can read about the Davidic covenant if you're taking notes in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 to 16, where God promises that He will give to you a king through David with an eternal kingdom. That's the mention of the Messiah. Now, from that point forward, the Jews would always be looking for the Messiah. So the hearers in the synagogue are going, yep, we know that, yep, we know that, yep, we know that. Here's the danger when you've been in church for a very long time. You forget the significance of history. You forget the significance of the message. Paul rehearsed the history because it is significant to the current day. God had taken them, regardless of their rebellion, regardless of all of their activities, and had taken them to a place where he continually gave a new promise, and in the new promise, I'm going to give you a Messiah King. Now they're looking for the Messiah, and they've been looking from David's time forward for that Messiah. Paul fast forward to who? John the Baptist. And after 400 years of silence, John the Baptist comes on the scene, fulfilling Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I'm going to send my, my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant and whom will delight his coming, says the Lord of hosts. John the Baptist fulfilled this. He fulfilled this promise. You say, well, why is that important? Because that 
took the hearers to the current day. John the Baptist would have been close to a contemporary of these hearers. Jesus and the apostles were contemporaries. Jesus the Messiah, he's setting them up to hear this. And notice the transition in verses 26 to 37. Here's where he makes his transition. Brethren, sons of Abraham's family. What covenant is he looking towards? The Abrahamic covenant. Brethren, sons of Abraham family, and those among you who fear God, Gentiles, the message of this salvation has been sent. Here's the gospel message. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, they didn't recognize Him. They would have known that Jerusalem rejected Jesus and the Jews that were there. The message had been sent. God's promise that was so much long ago has been fulfilled in our generation. Right now. Now this would have blown their mind. Could you imagine if we in this generation would see the Lord Jesus return today? If He returned today, that promise of His second coming would be fulfilled what? In our generation. Are we preaching a gospel that prepares people to have God's Word fulfilled Today, we need to. We need to be missional. We need to be evangelistic, to share the Word. Jesus is the message of salvation, the Word of God, John 1.1 1, 1 and John 1.14. He is the fulfillment of the promise of the Davidic promise, the kingdom that would come, the eternal kingdom. He's here. He's right now. Guess what? God gave you this promise and He's right here. And guess what you did? You killed Him. Now, these people in Antioch would say, we didn't kill him. The Jews in Jerusalem did. No. All of them. They rejected that promise. Israel's rejection of the Messiah was a pattern of continual rejection of God. Question. Do we see that in our world today? Is there a pattern of continual rejection of God everywhere we turn? And is it getting worse? Absolutely it is. Where God has to not only get out of the schools, no prayer in the schools, no Bibles in the schools, but God needs to get out of the government and God needs to, be get, out of, needs to get out of our world within this. And it is going rapidly. And that is this, this, this demonic deception that is challenging us today as evangelists and as missionaries, and you are missionaries. The Jewish nation, by extension, is guilting of killing the Messiah. Now, did they do it intentionally? Not necessarily. It was ignorance. In fact, in Luke 24, 46, it says this, and he said, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and would rise again from the dead. I love the fact that Paul continues with the redemption message. God redeemed you from Egypt. He put up with you in the wilderness. He put up with you when you wanted a king, and He gave it to you. He gave you the Messiah, and you killed Him. But He raised Him from the dead on the third day, as He, what? Promised. Why? Because God always keeps His Word. Always. And man's lack of faith will not stop. The Word of God. The good news is this. The Gospel is this. Even though the Romans killed him, the they, 
and the, the, the they that took him to the tomb, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, even though that happened, on the third day Jesus rose again. We know this account, but you've got to understand the significance of this. No one had ever been raised from the dead in themselves. Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 15.4, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the dead on the third day according to what? Scriptures. Now keep in mind, don't lose the context. Paul is preaching where? The synagogue. What do they do every Sabbath? They study what? Old Testament scriptures and prophecy. And what does Paul say? Paul says that promise, that resurrection was according to the scriptures that you study every Sabbath. He's preaching based on evidence and scripture and study. He goes on in that Jesus appeared for 40 days to eyewitnesses. A promise made, a promise kept. And he quotes a series of scriptures as witnesses. Psalm 2, verse 7, Isaiah 53, 3, Psalm 16, 10. All being fulfilled in the person of Jesus. And Jesus fulfilling the promise of David. We jump ahead to verse 38, which is the key. After all of this, notice what verse 38 says. And this is where he gives more or less an altar call. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed. And through him everyone who believes is freed from all things in which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Paul gives us a great pattern of evangelism. Go to where the people are. Bring out the historical truth about Jesus and man's condition. Present Jesus as the Son of God who lived and died for your sins and rose again three days later and then present an invitation. What was the invitation? Believe in Him. He's preaching a gospel in the synagogue to believe in them. Notice how he says, Therefore, brethren, receive the forgiveness and receive the justification that the law cannot accomplish. You cannot be saved by good works. Our works are like filthy, as the Bible would say, minstrel cloths. They are horrible compared to the holiness of God. There is nothing that we can do that is good. And it is by grace that we are saved through faith, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Paul preaches that in the synagogue to the Jews who believe that by law they would be justified. And he says the law couldn't do it, but this Jesus, this historical Jesus that is in our time, did it. In Jesus, you'll find forgiveness of sins. In Jesus, everyone who believes is justified. And in Jesus, everyone who believes will become right with God. Over 2,000 years later, that truth is still the same. It's the same for you. It's the same for myself. It's the same message that we need to preach. We may not preach it in a synagogue. We may preach it in a fishing boat, at work, on a football field. Wherever, wherever you find yourself. But the other thing that you have to preach is this. A warning. Notice how he warns the unbeliever. 
Therefore, verse 40, take heed so that the things spoken of in the prophets may not come upon you, which is judgment. We need to preach both sides of the gospel. The gospel that saves and the rejection of the gospel ends in judgment. Man is born into sin and is born dead. And unless he is born again, will remain dead. And will stand in judgment against his works. He quotes Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 5 where he says, Look among the Gentile, look among the nations. Observe and be astonished. Wonder, because I am doing something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. When we preach the gospel today, are there people that just don't even get it? Absolutely there are. So here's where Paul shines. Because he preached the gospel unfiltered. He gave them both the good and the bad. He gave them the truth and the love, but he also gave them the consequences. Please, if you are going to preach, preach the gospel unfiltered. In other words, give them the whole truth. Reveal somebody sin and their condition. Why? Because they need to know that they're a sinner and that they're rejecting God. They need to know that in rejecting God, it will end up in judgment. They need to know, though, that there is hope in Jesus. And that believing in Him, they will be saved. Now, in verses 42 to 52, if you notice, all the people had mixed reactions. They're like, wow, this is, this is interesting. We've never heard this before. Will you come back next Sabbath and talk on this again? And what happened the following Sabbath? It said the whole city. Now, it's hyperbole. Not the whole city. Not every single person. But many came out, and then the Jewish leaders became what? Jealous. Why? Because the great following was following Paul and not them. And what did they do? They began to blaspheme Paul and discredit his message. Preaching the gospel unfiltered is going to bring about opposition. People are going to speak against you. You preach the gospel unfiltered, you may lose friends. You preach the gospel unfiltered, you may lose family members. Notice these people, they come out and they come out against them. But we need to give the whole truth. Why? So that they would know the truth. They need to study it, and it takes time. In Acts 17:11 it says now these were more noble than those in Thessalonica for they received the word with eagerness examined the scriptures daily to see that these things were so Paul would spend a whole another week talking with people he would come back to the synagogue he would preach again within the synagogue and he would quote scripture again to them people would hear the gospel and either they were offended or they were believe there is only two responses to the gospel you're either going to reject the gospel or you're going to believe the gospel if you are worried about how somebody responds to the gospel and how it personally reflects on you, please set that aside. Because you're, you're sharing the gospel with somebody to give them the opportunity for eternal life. And if they reject, it's on them. As, as we see Paul landing this, and, and there were those that were against him so much so that these Jewish leaders rallied, notice verse 50, where it says, The Jews incited the devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city and instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas. 
It was the concerned citizens of Antioch that were posting on their Facebook page about all the things that they had done wrong. You didn't think they had that then? Yeah, they did. It was all the gossip and all the slander and all the things that all of these in-the-know, in-the-cool people had decided to stand against Paul and Barnabas. So what did Paul and Barnabas do? It's on you. We're shaking the dust off our feet and we're moving forward. Why is that important? Because you preach the gospel unfiltered and leave the results to God. You save no one. I save no one. It is a work of the Holy Spirit. Our role, our focus is to share the gospel unfiltered and let God do that work. What was the work? The Jews were convicted and the Gentiles were excited. The end result where the Gentiles were excited. Why? Because they're finally clued into the eternal kingdom. They have a chance for eternal life and they were always on the outside and now they're brought in. And what do we see? We see the end in verse 52. And the disciples were continually filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. And what does Saul do? Saul moves on. I want to show you where Saul goes next, where we're going to be picking up next week. He goes from Perga and he goes all the way out to Lystra. I'm sorry, to Iconium. Lystra is a little bit later. He'll go to Iconium in the region of Galatia. He doesn't stay here. And if you can see, the gospel is now moving all the way across within this region. Don't get stuck. Preach the gospel. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be full of discouragement. It's going to be, there's going to be disappointments. It's going to happen. But in the end, the person that you share Jesus with, when they meet you in heaven, because they've accepted the Lord, they're going to say, thank you for taking the time of sharing Jesus with me. I listened to your words. I responded to the work of the Spirit. And now I have eternal life. And the end is being filled with the Spirit and full of joy. That's the goal. My encouragement to you is preach the gospel unfiltered and leave everything else out to God. Let's pray. God, I thank you. I thank you that we can see Paul's example and and how he preached. God, that you want the gospel to be preached to everyone, regardless of how difficult it might be. God, you want us to preach the whole gospel that culminates in an invitation to believe in Jesus. And God, you want us to preach the gospel even though there's a mixed response and leave everything to you. Our job is to proclaim. Your job is to save. May we continue to do that all the days of our life. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Joyful, joyful, we adore you. God of glory, Lord of love. Hearts unfold like flowers before you. Hands lift us from the grave.
Before we go, I'd like for you to take a moment, close your eyes. In your mind, imagine, visualize the person that needs to hear the good news that Jesus loves them. That person that comes to your mind right now. Consider committing sharing Jesus with this week. Holy Spirit, may you give to each person even now that person that you want them to share the gospel with. Holy Spirit, may you empower them with the words to be able to effectively share love and forgiveness and hope and future. Holy Spirit, may you give them clarity of thought. And may you set that appointment. Clear the schedules. Give to them that time, that divine appointment that they would make to share Jesus. That when we come back together next week, we will hear testimony of how you worked this week with this group of missionaries. And as you go out this week, may you go out In the name of Jesus, the power and the authority of the Holy Spirit to live missionally and to be missionaries in the context of the culture, the world, wherever you find yourself this week. May we see many, many people filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with joy because the gospel was preached, unfiltered. We thank you, God, for all that you've given us. And may everything we say and do make you smile. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. And praise Jesus. Have a blessed week. Thanks for joining us in the study of God's Word with Pastor Kerry Wacker. We'd love to have you join us in person for worship each Sunday morning at 9 a.m. or 1045 a.m. We also meet Wednesday nights at 630 p.m. 
Warren Community Fellowship is located at 56523 Columbia River Highway in Warren, Oregon, between Scapoose and St. Helens. For more information about Warren Community Fellowship or about WCF Ministries, call us at 503-397-4387. And don't forget to like us on Facebook.